So um, let's open up in, in a word of prayer, ask God's blessing. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 tonight, but let's pray before we get there. Father, we do thank you so much for who you are. Uh, we praise your name uh, tonight. We, we thank you for um, just the many blessings that you've given this church in particular. We thank you for the amount of children that spread throughout the campus tonight, uh, from, from the nursery all the way up through the teenage group. Uh, Father, there's so much going on right here tonight, and as we're in here this evening, as we focus on your word, help us to just focus on what you have for us tonight. May you use me in a great way to, to speak to those that are here, and may we walk away tonight knowing uh, that we must have and how to have really the true heart of worship, and we pray these things in your son's name, amen. Uh, Matthew chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Um, I hadn't really asked Pastor what he's going to speak on this morning, so I'm really glad that he hit on shepherds because I was going to do the wise men. Um, if not, I was going to have to change it up a little bit and figure something else out. But I'm really glad he hit on the shepherds. Um, and so tonight we're going to look at the wise men. The book of Matthew <clears throat> was written to the Jews uh, from Matthew, the tax collector, uh, the disciple. Uh, it was written to the Jews to show Christ as their king. That's why Matthew chapter 1 you see the record and the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah that the Jews have been looking for and how he was part of the kingly line of David. Jesus Christ the Messiah in verse 1 of chapter 1, the, uh, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Matthew was very, very much wrote that genealogy in the first part of his book to say this is what I'm going to be writing about, Jesus Christ the King, that he is the Messiah, he is the King. And he, wanted us to, he wants us to know that. Even though we're not Jews and it was originally written to Jews, we can see that Christ is the Messiah all throughout the book of Matthew. And Matthew is the only reason, and perhaps his, his theme of his book is the reason why he's the only one that included this account of the wise men. And much, we, much that we know about the wise men um, is, is, is kind of false. <laughs> um, we really don't know too much about them other than what's written here in, in, in the Bible. There's a little bit of, of, of history um, that has been written concerning these, these men. Tradition tells us there were three, right, and their names were Caspar, Balthazar, and Melchior. Uh, we don't know that. Um, that's just how it kind of came down through the line. They chose three because, I'm, I'm assuming, because of the three gifts that were given, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But we really don't know how many there were. Um, most likely, there was a lot more than three. It was probably an entourage because of how far they came and traveled. Um, a 12th century bishop of Cologne even claimed to have found their skulls and has, has put them in, in somewhere where you can actually go see them. Um, I mean, I don't believe that either, but, um, but at any rate, that's kind of the things that have been passed down through just tradition. But what we do know is what the Bible tells us, that they did come from the East. We're going to have a quick kind of history lesson from what, what I've studied, um, just very quickly as, as a form of introduction. You didn't know you were going to have history class tonight. But um, we really have no idea the number. We don't know their names, but we know that they, they were magi. Um, the word here uh, written in the Greek um, is, is magoi. It's where we get our word magician. Um, magus was a term used in Persia and Babylonia for a wise man and a priest who was an expert in astrology in interpretation of dreams and various other uh, secret arts. Um, they were not magicians, uh, per se, like David Copperfield or anything like that. Um, 
I thought about doing a magic for you tonight. I do that with the kids uh, to, to, to share a gospel message sometimes, but I don't really call it magic because it's just really easy. It's just, it's just poof, it just happens. It's not anything magical. And I always tell them, there's nothing magical about what I'm about to do. If you study, you can... So it's, it's not really even that. But they were really a pagan priestly line um, that, that really goes back through the ages. Um, they, they were really a tribe of people, a pagan tribe of people from the Medes and the Persians, a uh, very ancient, very large group of people. That was the Magi. Um, they were very skilled in their astronomy, as I've said, and astrology. Um, if you remember the, the great empires, right, you had the Babylonian Empire, where you had King Nebuchadnezzar come in and take the children of Israel away for 70 years, right? Daniel was in that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come along. Uh, later with, with, with that as well. You have Daniel and the lion's den. That was no longer the Babylonian Empire. The, 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 what came, who came in after that was the Medo-Persian Empire. You have King Darius there, right? And that was with Daniel and the lion's den. And so you had the Medo-Persian Empire, and then you have the Greek Empire, and then in Christ's time, the Roman Empire. Um, the, the, the Magi were, were believed to have been kind of in that area of Bab- Babylon, the Babylonian time period, and into the Medo-Persian Empire period. Um, and that is where it, it is believed that they met Daniel. Because Daniel was there. Daniel was very well known. If you read the book of Daniel and you see how, how high up Daniel was, right? And Daniel would have been an influencer. Ancient day influencer, really. He was influencing the people, and, and really he would have been teaching uh, them... Uh, the Old Testament scriptures, the Old Testament prophets. Daniel was a prophet, right? So he would have been teaching them the Old Testament prophecies. And I believe those, I am a strong believer that that is what, where these magi have come from because they have somehow learned about the fact that a Messiah was coming for the Jews. And who else would they have known or, or learned that from other than Daniel and the influence of those Jews who had been taken captive I believe God had a strong purpose in all of that plan, and part of it was for this specific point in time for the wise men to come. Um, they, they would have known the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, where it says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, for from you one will come forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His times of coming forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So I want us to look at these wise men and what, what this narrative, this part of the gospel message, what it has to do with us today in our time period. First of all, if you're taking notes, the first thing I want you to see is that these wise men showed assurance. But first I want us to go to Matthew chapter 2 and, and look in verse 1 and follow along as I read. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this has been written by the prophet. And this is that that verse in Micah. This has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Of course, the Jews at this time period were really looking for somebody to shepherd them out of the Roman rule. 
In verse 7, then Herod secretly called the Magi, his, the, these Magi, and determined from them the exact time this star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. And we're going to stop reading there. We'll, we'll, we'll read a little bit more. First of all, I want us to notice, if you're taking notes, that these wise men, these magi, they showed assurance. They showed assurance. We're going to look at the fact they showed assurance, they showed joy, they showed honor. And the last one, they showed submission. Those are the four points tonight. They showed assurance, first of all. They showed assurance, first of all, in who Jesus was. As we read there in verse 2, they ask that question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews. They are showing their knowledge, really, of that Old Testament prophecy. Numbers 24, 17 says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. Now, now these are Gentile men, but they obviously heard this at some point in time, I believe through the influence of Daniel, about the Jews and their belief in this Messiah. So they had this knowledge of what was to take place. And it's this knowledge that brings them on their journey, but they even use the phrase, where is this person who's been born king of the Jews? Now, there was no king of the Jews, so I believe they are bringing in the reference to the actual Messiah, the nameship there, that they're showing a belief and assurance that the Messiah has been born, the one that they've learned about. And so they're coming from afar to come to worship him. So they showed assurance in who Jesus was, the true Messiah, the King of the Jews. They also showed assurance in God's sign. Now God saw fit to use a star as a sign to guide these wise men on their journey. Now if you're like me and you have this mind that just likes to think about a lot of things, and every time you come across something you, you, be, you begin to wander off and just think of all sorts of questions, right? What kind of star? What did it look like? Uh, was it big? Did it really move? Um, is, it, is it a star that's still up there somewhere and it's just because stars have this, this, this pattern to them? Is it coming around sometime in the future? What kind of a star? Um, there's a lot of people down through the ages who have tried to come up with the, you know, different thoughts. Is it a comet? Is it something else? Right? Um, there is also a belief that it's a, it, it, it's, it's a lineup of some of the planets that, make a, that looks like a bright big star. Um, there's someone who, who uh, created a DVD called The Star of Bethlehem. It's, it's pretty good, but it, again, it's, it's not necessarily from the Bible. It's just an attorney who, who uses a software system called the Starry Night that, that runs what the night sky looks like um, from anywhere in the world at any time period, which is kind of cool. And so he, he kind of talks about, from a science perspective, of what the star could possibly be. We don't really know for sure, though. We don't really know. It's kind of nice and interesting to think about all of those things, and, and I really thought the DVD was done well, but we really don't know for sure. We don't know what kind of a star it was, and that's not where I want to get bogged down in tonight. I just want us to bring up, there's a lot of people who think about what the star is. What I do know is this, that the Hebrew and Greek word for star was used also at times figuratively, so it's possible that this was a figurative word to just mean this, 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 this brightness. Perhaps the Shekinah glory of God himself just shining for that specific time for those specific men to see and no one else could see it. 
Um, it could possibly be that. The Old Testament calls Christ the star. We read that verse, the star uh, out of Jacob. The New Testament Christ refers to himself as the bright morning star. Is he really a star? No, he's being figurative because this could possibly be just this figurative. We, we do know that God himself, as light, led the children of Israel in the wilderness at night, the pillar of fire, by day, a cloud, right? So perhaps this star was the very light of God himself. Very much like that cloud came down and dwelt over the tabernacle as they traveled in the wilderness, and they knew there's the presence of God. Perhaps this light was God himself shining, saying, I'm here, I am present, I'm with you. That is perhaps more the key. I want us to, to notice just first that we just simply need to realize that this star is a reminder to us of an omnipotent God, exerting his universal influence over all things for the one purpose of worship of his son. That I know for sure is what this star was telling us. God, at this point in time, because he's all-powerful and can do all things, controlled maybe a real star or just put a star there for that time just for these men. We know it wasn't there the whole time because they said we saw a star in the east. And they stopped there in Jerusalem. They don't know where they're going, right? So perhaps the star was there and disappeared. God is leading them, though, for sure, for the purpose of worshiping his son. So we know they showed assurance in who Jesus was, and they showed assurance in the sign that God had given them. Men who really studied the stars. So they knew, when they looked up in the sky, they knew this is important. Something is different than what we've usually seen. And they knew it was special. And that's why they left and traveled. Um, they showed assurance despite the chief priests. We see all these chief priests gathering together in verse 4. And the scribes of the people. And as King Herod asked them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said, well, he's to be born in Bethlehem. Now, you know, I don't know about you, but right there, I go, well, didn't they kind of be like, huh, maybe these guys have something. Maybe they're on to something. Because they literally just read the prophecy. He's going to be in Bethlehem. I, I mean, if that was, don't you think, like all of us sitting here are like, yeah. I mean, because we know that, right? We have the, all of Bible. But these men who studied scripture are saying, yeah, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. I mean, they didn't show excitement. They didn't show anything. They just gave out these facts of, yeah, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. They should have showed out of anybody, these men, the scribes, the teachers of the Old Testament should have shared in this excitement. And they just didn't. They knew the scriptures, but their heart was simply darkened to the truth. So these wise men showed assurance in who Jesus was, assurance in God's signs, and assurance even despite the chief priests who, who really didn't show excitement. They just, well, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Secondly, they showed assurance. Secondly, they showed joy. Look at verse 10. We stopped reading before we got to that. I'm <clears throat> uh, sorry, I lost my place here. When they saw the star, so what happens? Uh, after hearing the king, verse 9, they went their way. And the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and, and we read here, stood over the place where the child was. It literally led them to the place. 
that, that tells me it's something miraculous. It's not maybe just a star in the sky. That's why my thought is perhaps it is the very glory of God shining and leading these wise men. And maybe, I'm sure it's just the wise men could see it, leading them to the place, exact spot where the child is. In verse 10, when they saw the star, what does it say here? They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Anytime you see kind of the same words repeated, uh, that, that's kind of there for emphasis, right? Because it could have said they rejoiced and left it at that, right? We would have gotten the idea, but Matthew as the writer, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, tells us it was more than just your normal joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I mean, if you can think of the time you were the ultimate happiest, the most excited, right? Maybe it was when Michigan beat Ohio State. I don't know, right? That's not, that's not my team. I'm not going to tell you who my team was because uh, they didn't do well. Um, but perhaps it was that. But if you can imagine the most excited you've ever been, perhaps when your children were born, right? You, as a parent, I know that excitement. Or maybe it was something else. You, you, whatever part of life you're in, you can think of that time where you were just the ultimate, most excited. That's, that's, that's where we see these wise men. But then take that and multiply it times like 100, and you might have the idea of what it says here when it says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They finally found the Messiah, the one they've learned about for centuries. And they showed joy. They were joyful. Why? Because they found what they were looking for. Psalm 105 verse 3 says, Glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. I can remember a time where I was joyful because I found something I was searching for. I was a youth pastor many years ago in southern Indiana, and the first time I was running a water event, you know, where you just, like, throw water balloons and everything, and obviously being the youth pastor, you're, you're the one who has the target on your back, and so everybody's throwing water balloons at you, um, and so I'm just grabbing all the water balloons I can, and I'm not paying, I'm just throwing, and all of a sudden, I feel my ring on my finger just fly off, and it just goes, and I'm like, uh-oh. And I don't care where the water balloons are still coming from. I just yell, stop. <laughs> I stopped everything. And I'm on my, immediately on my hands and knees just combing the grass. I'm like, I have to find this. I'd only been married probably, we, we were in Evansville, Indiana, probably for four years, about a year after we were married. So this is within the first five years of marriage. And I, I'm, I'm thinking in my head, I'm dead. This is not good. I don't have my ring anymore. This is, this is no good. And I'm combing the grass. And I'm looking for it. And guess what? I don't find it. I'm devastated. Um, and I had to, the church was across the street at that time. And it was a school area we'd been using. A week has gone by. They've mowed the grass. And I'm just feeling worse. And they go, oh, it's just, it's probably chipped up now. It's gone. And my father and mother, father-in-law and mother-in-law were coming down to visit, and I knew he had a metal detector. I said, just bring your metal detector. We, we need it. So he brings it down, and we get out there, and I go right to the spot where I think it is, right? And you, you know that the sound a metal detector makes when it, it comes in and figures out there's metal there, right? And it makes that sound, and I'm, I'm joyful. And I start digging, and then I'm not joyful because it's a bottle cap, <laughs> And, I, oh. 
And then we go again, another spot, and it makes that sound. I'm not as joyful as I was the first time, right? But I go, okay. It's, it, 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 and then I'm reaching down, I'm, and, and there is my ring. Now I'm exceedingly joyful with great joy because I have found my ring. That's the picture I imagine with these wise men when they found the place, the exact place where the child was. That kind of joy. Because it was something in their mind of great value that they had been looking for. They had traveled so far to come and they finally got to where they, they were going. So, they showed the assurance, they showed joy. The third thing I want us to see is they showed honor by presenting him with gifts. Let's look down after verse 10 at verse 11. After coming into the house, now, now we see here, it's a house, so he's no longer in the manger, right? It's believed this could be. Uh, remember earlier there, Herod asked the Magi in verse 7, hey, what time did that star appear? Right? Remember, did you catch that? He says in verse 7, hey, what time did that star appear? So Herod's doing the math in his head about how old this child could be. Hang on to that because we'll, we'll come back to it in a little bit. So they showed him honor. So they come to the house where the child was. And they come inside. The child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They showed him honor by presenting him with gifts. The people of the East, it's, it's been said, never approached the presence of kings and great personages, one above them in rank. Uh, without a present or a gift in their hands. Um, it's also noticeable throughout the Old Testament. In 1 Kings chapter 10, the queen of Sheba brought gifts for Solomon. Um, what I want us to notice about these gifts, all three of these gifts were productions of Arabia, and they were gifts of great worth. That's the significance of these gifts. We see the gift of gold, uh, and I don't have to explain what gold is very, very much to any of us. We know what gold is. Uh, there's a belief that perhaps this was showing Christ's royalty. If, if you want to go that deep, that's fine. Because it does. It's, gold is a sign of royalty and riches. It's a symbol of great wealth. We see frankincense. Some believe perhaps this was showing his divinity. And, and we could go, go to that extent. Uh, we know that frankincense was an incense used in sacrificial offerings. It was a production of Arabia. It was this white resin or, or gum. And it was obtained by a, from a tree by making incisions into that bark and, and, and pressing the gum to flow out. Um, and it was highly, uh, had a high fragrance uh, to it. If you've ever, ever smelled uh, frankincense, you know. It has a high fragrance um, to it uh, when burned. And so, so it was therefore used in worship, uh, where it was burned as a, as a pleasant offering to God. Um, passages of Scripture you can write down for later, Exodus 30, verse 8, Leviticus 16, verse 12. Um, it is produced also in the East Indies, but chiefly there in Arabia. And it's, it's, it's probable that the wise men came from that area of the world, perhaps, because this was a high commodity, frankincense. They also gave him myrrh. Some, some say this was showing the suffering that was going to be had on the cross. And I'm not going to disagree if, if we think that, because it very well could have that, that meaning, because if you know about myrrh, myrrh was a perfume used in ointments and embalming of the dead. It's probably not the case that these, these men were merely just magicians or astronomers. That, that, it, it, they, they knew a lot about a lot of things. They were great knowledge keepers. The key 
really here is in, in the gifts themselves, though. The key here is the high price that these had. You know, myrrh, myrrh was this ointment uh, it, that was also it was used as a perfume, but it was sometimes used mingled with wine. If you remember, at the time Christ's death was dying on the cross, they gave him uh, wine, something mingled with myrrh. It was used as kind of an anesthetic. Um, it was given to Jesus at the time of his death. It's in Mark 15, 23 and Matthew 27, 34. They were high commodity uh, offerings that these men were giving. They didn't just pick up these cheap trinkets at the 7-Eleven, right? Um, they spent a lot of time and thought into what they were going to present this high king of kings. And you know, the thought is, what would you give a king? Because we already know, they know this is the king of the Jews, the Messiah. I mean, what, what would I give a king? Would, would you give him a little scrap of something? A little trinket in a, in a gift shop somewhere? Of, of course we wouldn't. Would you put little effort into that gift you're giving a king? I think all of us in this room would say, ah, you know, that, that would be kind of silly to give a little trinket to a king. No, you would want to give something your best, anything that you could find that was just anything that's valuable or important is what you would present. Something, perhaps maybe you don't have anything of value, but it's something extra special to you, you would give. It's valuable to you, might be something you give. Maybe it's something you can't get in other countries. These gifts are of importance. All three found in that area of the world, all very expensive. In my mind, as I see these three gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, I'm thinking these wise men, these magi, are giving Christ their best as a sacrifice. And when we think of these three gifts, I want us to think of that. That they're giving him their best as a sacrifice. And then our thought is, what do I have to offer the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And if you're like me, you think, I, I really don't have anything that expensive to give him. But if we, if we remind ourselves of Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul, as the writer here under the influence of the Holy Spirit, writes, I therefore urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is, is your spiritual service of worship. So the question I ask, what do you have to offer Christ? Can easily be answered by looking at Romans 12.1, and we can say, well, all I have to offer him is me, my life, because that's the thing that's most important to me, is my life. And who I am. We are to let God be in control of our lives. So our gift to him is a sacrifice of the control of our life. It's a sacrifice. It means putting aside all the thoughts and ambitions that you have that were your own. And deciding to say, Lord, if, if that is not your will, here I am. For whatever you have. I don't have to do those things if that's not what you want of me. That's the kind of sacrifice that we can give if we don't have gold, frankincense, or myrrh. I don't. 
I'm reminded of an illustration I read very long time ago, and I can't even give who this illustration is because it's all over, and I've heard it in many different places, about a, a church bus driver who was visiting a poor neighborhood to pick up children for a Sunday school class, and he sees this poor little boy in ragged clothes and asks him if he would like to go to church on Sunday. And if so, he was going to come by and pick him up on the bus. The boy's very excited and, of course, says yes. And the driver asked if his parents were home so that he could talk to him. And the boy said, they're not home very much, but they're home right now. So, yes, you can talk to him. So he did. He worked it all out. And on Sunday, the church bus pulls up. And he honks the horn, and out comes the little boy dressed in some ragged clothes. The bus driver was very kind, made the boy feel welcome, took him to church, and introduced him to his new Sunday school teacher, who was also kind, just like the bus driver. And he heard about Jesus that morning in Sunday school and thought the bus driver and his teacher must be like this Jesus because no one ever treated him this way. And his teacher took him into big church and had him sit with her. And he was amazed at all the people. The beautiful carpet, the nice clothes everyone was wearing, how they sang about Jesus, how the preacher talked about Jesus. And then... They did something he wasn't familiar with, and he, he didn't really completely understand it at first. The men gathered up in front. Some men gathered up and were passing this shiny little plate up and down the aisleway. It passed him, and he watched as his new teacher put some money in the plate and passed it by him. And he asked her, what's that for? And she said, it's for Jesus. And his heart sank. He'd heard about Jesus. He'd sang about Jesus. He saw Jesus and his new friends, but he had nothing to give Jesus. And as the man took the plate from him and moved to the next dial, he got an idea. So he sprang up and went over to the man with the plate and asked him if he could have the plate. With caution, the man handed it to him. The boy put the plate on the floor and stepped in it. He said, Jesus, I don't have anything to give you but myself. And that's the picture we come to when we think about a sacrifice, an offering to God. You know, we, we, we give our offerings as members of, of this church every Sunday. We offer God our monetary offerings, but an offering goes beyond just monetary, doesn't it? Our life, based on Romans 12.1, is a constant offering to God of worship to Him because of who He is and what He's done for us. Because, folks, God sent his son Jesus to this earth to leave his home in heaven, to come down to earth. Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, to live as a human, as a man. Not an easy life, but a life of hardship. A life where he had no home to lay his head. A life where he served others. In the life where he ultimately gave his life for you and for me. Because, folks, he had to die on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. Because the Bible says we're all sinners. We've all sinned at least once and a lot more than just once. That's what I tell the, the kids in Sparks every Sunday night we share with them. Do they understand it all? Probably not. That's not up to me to make sure they understand it completely. 
I just want to keep sharing with them the fact that Jesus loves them. And that they, as bad as it is, we're all sinners. And because we're sinners, we can't be in heaven unless we've come through Christ. Unless we've accepted that Christ died on that cross to pay for our sins. They've all, I tell you what, these Sparkies this year have been memorizing verses like any other year I've been a part of Sparks. It is insane. It's great. Great insane, right? Insane might be a negative connotation to your mind, but for me, insane is like, wow, right? I mean, they really are just going after it, going after it. And you know what? To me, that's awesome. Because I can remember those Sparks verses from way back many years ago. (laughs) Forty years ago, I was in Sparks. And I remember learning those verses. And I still have them in my head to this day. It's a different translation, but it's the same. Jesus died, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. They've all said that verse this year. And I'm just there a little bit, plugging away at those verses and teaching them what I've just taught you. That Jesus loves you. That he died on the cross for your sin. And the only way to heaven is to accept that. Death on the cross for your sin. To accept that free gift of salvation so that you too can have a home in heaven and live with him so that we don't have to face eternity in hell. Is that not an awesome message? It's wonderful. How many people do we meet on a daily basis that don't know? That don't have that hope of eternal life? They're searching for answers everywhere. But the answer is is right here. And really, if you just focus on the Gospels, there's your answers. The rest can come. The Gospel is your answer. These wise men were not Jews. They were Gentiles, but they got it. They understood who Jesus was. They weren't worshiping him as just some king. They were really worshiping him as the king of the Jews, the Messiah. What Matthew was trying to show is that Jesus is the king of the Jews, the Messiah, the one that God said would come to save his people from sin. And if you know you're a sinner, and you know, then you know you don't deserve heaven. Is there anything I can do to deserve a spot in heaven? No. I can, I can work and do as much good as I can, but I will not get into heaven that way. Because Jesus says of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. It's through Jesus. And I know most of us here tonight might know that message, and it might be an exciting thing for you. But if you're here tonight, and you don't know that, or you've never accepted Christ and salvation, I just want to urge you tonight... I share with the Sparks every night on a very small level that Jesus saves us from our sin in many different ways that I can think of. Why? Because I want them to know how to get to heaven and that it's not by being good. 
is simply by accepting Jesus. And if you've never done that tonight, let this be your night. Please, come talk to me. Talk to any of the leaders. Maybe Brian Lick, who's up here playing the guitar for our singing. We would love to show you how you can know that you're going to heaven. The last thing I want us to see about these wise men, my wife said don't go long. Yeah, because I'm usually the one speaking down there and doing all the things, so I appreciate her tonight taking up the mantle. And um, She said don't go long. Now I'm looking at the clock going, I'm almost done. What else do I have to say? Last of all, they showed submission. Now I just jinxed it, and I will go long. <clears throat> what did these men do? Well, we read back in our passage, we read it. What did they do? After they presented him gifts, they fell to the ground. Well, before they presented the gifts, they fell to the ground, and what did they do? They worshipped him. They worshipped him. What is the true meaning of worship? I mean, honestly, this could be a, a whole sermon in and of itself. What is true worship? Um, there's a lot of passages we could go to. I'm not going to go to them. But what is the true meaning of worship? An old English word for worship, it used to be worth-ship. W-O-R-T-H. Worth-ship. Later became worship. It just took out the T. But maybe that can help you see what worship really is. It means to prostrate oneself in homage or to be, do reverence. And worship, it's to show by position that the one standing before you is to be held in high esteem. So what they're showing this child, his worth, that he is to be held in high esteem. Jesus was probably no older than two years of age at this time. And here comes these magi, these important men, who came from a very long distance bowing down before him and showing him worth. The one who just a year or so ago, as we saw this morning, was born not in a bed, not in a room, but in a stable. And the first bed he had to lay in was the feeding trough for the animals. Can you imagine that? The king of kings and lord of lords. His first place to lay his head was a feeding trough for animals. Started from humble beginnings. He left all of heaven to come down to earth. And they're showing submission to him and their belief that he was the Messiah. And that he was higher in position than they. And my thought is, comes to our worship. We talked a moment ago about worship giving of, of ourselves to God, our life as a sacrifice. Worship comes in many different forms for us in the church, right? We have singing, we have praying. Those two are forms of worship that we can do not just in church. We can do that anywhere we are. I have a daughter who does that anywhere she is. She's singing constantly. Any song that she knows, she will sing. It's not always centered on church things, but she's always singing. You know what? It's great. It's great. We can worship God anywhere by singing, by praying. Uh, we also show worship by our giving of our, our tithes and offerings. But 
I want us to think about how is your worship? Because to have a heart of worship, anybody can sing. Anybody can give an offering, right? If you think about Jesus' story there when he was in the temple and you had the the, the Pharisee and the, and, the, and the sinner in their prayer in the temple, right? The Pharisee stood out above everybody else and yelled nice and loud so everyone could hear. And you had the, the other, the sinner, who said, be merciful to me, I'm a sinner. Very quiet, humble, bowed down. Which one had the true heart of worship? I believe Pastor spoke on that not long ago, right? Who had the true heart of worship? The one who said, be merciful to me, I'm a sinner. So you can definitely put money in the plate, give to the church an offering. You can definitely sing loud and beautifully. You can definitely pray. But just because you do all of those things doesn't necessarily mean you have a true heart of worship, does it? Are you following me? Hopefully I didn't lose you. Because you can do all three of those things and still not have a heart of worship. So what is worship? It's simply in your heart and in your mind knowing you don't deserve heaven at all. Knowing that you're, you have a, having a heart that truly desires that you'll stop at nothing to show Christ how much he is worth to you. That's the true heart of worship. Do we show that with our life? Do we show that he is the king of kings and lord of lords? Do we show by our submission to him as our savior? Do we submit to him just as savior or we do submit to him as our lord and our master of our life? That's the important thing. That's what these wise men were showing. And by the way, that's why God created us in the first place. To worship him. And that's it. If you've ever wondered what your purpose is on earth, that's your purpose. 1 Corinthians 10.31, God reminds me of this specific thing. He says, whether then you eat or you drink, and whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Folks, that's our purpose in life. That's why God created you. That's why God put you on this earth, to give him glory to worship him with your life even if it's in the mundane things that you do without thinking eating or drinking because most of the time we we just we don't remind ourselves to swallow keep the water in don't let it dribble out right keep the food chew it don't choke on it swallow we don't think through any of that right we just do it we don't think and that's what the writer that's what paul say first corinthians 10 31 he's saying even in the things that you're doing without thinking do everything to the glory of God. And that's the thought I want us to leave with tonight. That's why we're on this earth. To give God ultimate glory in all things. When something great is happening in your life, give glory to God. Then the other side of the coin, when something terrible is happening in your life, something hard, you give glory to God. What's easier, obviously, 
because things are going great. That's always the easy time to give glory to God, but even in the times when it's really hard, when you think you're all alone, when you think you have nowhere to turn, you have God. And in that, in that one instant, in that one thought, that's alone should cause us to go, I'm giving glory to God because I don't know what else to do. I don't know if you've ever been in those positions. Maybe you've experienced both sides of that coin and you can nod your head and go, yeah, yeah. Just some thoughts. You know, Jesus Christ is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I love Christmas. A wonderful time of year. And this is the time of year I get to speak on, on topics just like this that are just exciting. To remind us that, hey, whatever's happening in your life, maybe you're going through some hard times, or maybe it's just a, you're having a great year. Either one. I know we're all on different levels. We might not know who's struggling, who, who's having a you know, great time. But be reminded that no matter where you are, are you giving glory to God because of who he is? Because, folks, it doesn't matter where we're at in life. The one constant is that God has offered us salvation. And for that one thing alone is, it, is the only reason we need to give glory to God. Jesus Christ is our king. He's the one in whom honor is due. And these wise men, this, 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 this narrative is significant because it shows us that even when the Jews were, were also looking for Christ as the Messiah, so were these men who were Gentiles, who most likely heard it down through Daniel and had been taught from Daniel about these prophecies. And they too were looking. And they recognized this special star, whatever it might have been that God showed them, they recognized it as the birth of the Messiah. And are we worshiping him like these wise men? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for who you are. I thank you for this narrative in the Gospel of Matthew, the only one to include this narrative of the wise men, that we could see that it's believed perhaps two years after the birth of Christ due to the traveling of the wise men on the time of seeing the star based on the time period that Herod was killing children two years of age and under because of that. And Father, I thank you for the story that we see, the wise men, these magi who came to, for the express purpose of worshiping the one who was born, the King of kings and Lord of lords. That you chose to show these, these pagan men the truth of Scripture. And that they followed in submission and obedience and followed and submitted to and worshipped Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. May we too this time of year and throughout this next coming year not forget where our worship and where our heart ought to lie. May we be encouraged by this message. And maybe there's somebody here who's challenged by this message to accept the salvation that Christ offers. May they too find the true meaning of Christmas and the salvation of Christ that is offered as a gift. Father, as we give gifts to those around us, might we be reminded of this message, the gift that you've given us of Christ and salvation. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen. Don't forget, after the service, 
They have cookies down in the teen room. If you don't quite know where that's at, you just come down past where all the kids are lined up. Down that hallway, not the first hallway. If you, want, if you turn there, you can kind of get to it the long way, but go down the second hallway before you hit the doors on the left. That's where the teen room is. All right, with that, you are dismissed. Have a Merry Christmas. Thank <laughs> you.